Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Living With Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abijamra, and if you haven't met me yet, I am your host. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, if you are a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that we do not shy away from discussing difficult conversations. But most of all, we love to talk about hope in difficult situations. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to launching our next series that I've called Uncomfortable Conversations About Racism in the Church. It is so tempting for me to preempt this series by admitting how ignorant I am about this conversation. And the truth is that uh, I'm not the most expert on this or to sheepishly state how nervous I am about saying the wrong thing in this space. But frankly, I am just really looking forward to hearing from some of the most amazing black brothers and sisters in the world. Um, they've all been either friends of mine or referred to me from really close friends of mine. And I know that you're going to learn so much from them. Listen, if there's ever been a time for the church to lean in and learn from our black brothers and sisters, it's now. I thank God for the opportunity to do so, and I cannot wait for you to meet my guest today. Uh, now, if you're one of those people who is sort of thinking, man, I'm tired of talking about race, then you need to listen up. This series is especially for you. And if you're sitting in your seat and you can't wait to learn more, then you came to the right place. I believe that Christianity has always been about transformation, about becoming more Christ-like. And if anyone needs to apply those principles of change right now, it's us, the church, Christians. This podcast series is primarily aimed at the church, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, uh, who have been now invited to step up and lead the world in reconciliation and love. We're not to shy away from these conversations, but to get a biblical understanding on how to love better. And I believe our guests are going to help us do that. So let me introduce to you our first guest for this series. Her name is Catherine Freeman and... Believe it or not, she's a lawyer, but she's a lot more than that, too. Uh, so I want to tell you a little bit more about her life. She hails from Texas. She's got an English degree from Texas A&M and a law degree from the University of Texas Law School. She's actually finishing up her seminary now at Truett Seminary, which is part of Baylor University, which, Catherine, I don't know if you knew this, but I've trained at Baylor. I did my pediatric residency there. So we've got common blood. And she um, has spent a long time, over 10 years, working on issues that relate to advocacy and policy. Uh, I just found out today that she's part of the Pelican Project, which is an amazing collective of women who write and speak and are committed to Christian orthodoxy and justice issues, among other things. So, Catherine, besides the fact that you love Jesus, Justice, and Justice and Beyonce, uh, you live in Austin, which I think in my mind means that you love Tex-Mex too, but uh, I just want to welcome you heartily to this podcast. I know that was a bit of a long intro, but I'm really excited about the few minutes we have ahead of us here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And if you're from Texas, I feel like Tex-Mex is our official food here. So yeah, you have to love it. <laughs> right. So I spent three years there. And on my last day leaving Texas, I was pumping gas. And this man said to me, where are you going? I had a stuff in my car and, and looked like I was moving. I said, well, I'm going to Florida. I was starting my fellowship in Florida. And, and he said, once in Texas, once you've lived in Texas, you'll always come back. And so it's been 30 years or no, not quite. It's been about 20 years, but I, I've gone back to visit. But so far, I have not gone back to move there, but it is quite a, a, a great state. Uh, for a while, I thought it was its own country, but but it is one of the states. And uh, you guys right now are going through a bit of a, of a difficult time with the spike in COVID cases. How are you holding up down there? I'm doing well. It, yeah, we are in a little bit of, we, have, we reopened and now we're closing back down again. But, you know, whatever we have to do to get it under control. Well, good. Well, you've got quite an extensive resume, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I want to today uh, talk a little bit about your life. In fact, we're going to start. I would like you to tell me a little bit about your journey. Um, but really want to move as we 
start getting to know you more about this conversation on, on racism in the church, which, you know, obviously we're living in a time right now where this is at the forefront of everybody's mind. Um, so before we get to the hard stuff, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, and and, and I, I hate to say this, but this is sort of part of the conversation. Do you get a lot of, uh, wow, you're a lawyer and you're getting your MDiv and you're black. Has that been an obstacle for you or has it been an advantage? Like, Talk to us a little bit about some of the package that comes with the life that you've led so far. Yeah. So um, I grew up in a Christian home. Um and um, committed to the church really early in life. Um, I came to advocacy and public policy because of my faith. Um, had an experience in college um, where God really just opened my eyes to systemic inequality when it comes to education. Um, and I grew up, my, both my parents are college edu- educated, have advanced degrees. And so, you know, I never did you grow up um, in the Dallas area. Um, and so I, and, and just for details, predominantly white or predominantly black neighborhood. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. And so our neighborhood at the time uh, when I grew up, it was predominantly white, but the schools I went to were pretty, well, I went to a Christian school that was pretty much all white. Like it was maybe my siblings and one other family, um, that was African-American. Um, and then we switched to public schools and the public schools we went to were fairly diverse, but I would say still majority white, Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, so I had never really been exposed to educational inequality until I went to college. Um, and that really spurred my interest in policy and justice issues. Um, and I get all the time, um, it's actually kind of funny where people say, oh, you're so articulate. And I laugh because I'm like, I went to law school. Of course I'm articulate. (laughs) I was like, I don't think that would be a very good reflection on the University of Texas um, School of Law if I wasn't articulate. But I think people are, I think people say that and they're shocked because I'm African-American. I think because I'm a female. And then even though I'm in my late-ish 30s, um, I look pretty young. So I also think that Mm -hmm. might be a part of it. Um, So yeah, I feel all the time. Well, well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I, I I want to stop for a second and, and address that too. So in terms of the context of you getting this aha moment of wanting to work with advocacy, was did that come from textbook material or did, did you ever experience, like, I guess backing up even a little, when did you first realize that you're black? You know what I mean? Like, when did you realize this was a thing and, and, and that you might face certain prejudices in this, in this world? Um, I, you know, it is, I think it's hard for me to like really think, I think I knew that my entire life. I will say, um, you know, like I said, my parents were middle class who grew up in the suburbs. Um, My grandparents, particularly on my mom's side, were very into um, education and us knowing um, our history and culture. And so my grandfather, when we would spend time with him, would spend a lot of time talking about African-American contributions to building this country. And so I would say, you know, probably when I was like seven, eight or nine, having those conversations with him, of him explaining, um, you know, people are going to say this because you're African-American, but here sort of, here's like the truth. Um, And I, and I think as I've gotten older, you know, as I grew up having conversations with older relatives, um, I had an aunt that um, was one of the first black women hired to work in the cosmetic department in the Neiman Marcus Mm -hmm. in downtown Dallas, which was like a big deal because at the time when she was like, she was in her early twenties, I think when she got hired, um, white women didn't want black people touching them because, you know, there was some fear that something would rub off. And so I think hearing about those experiences growing up 
from as a child, like recognizing, okay, there's something different about being black. Um, I think was a big, was probably like the biggest awakening is just kind of my own family and hearing our own kind of testimonials. Um, yeah. And was like probably the awakening. And, and when did you first experience any form of racism yourself? Has that been something that you've had to deal with a lot? I mean, I think the first thing I can really recall is when I went, so um, the elementary school I went to for the last, like, fifth and sixth grade, I was in kind of like the gifted and talented um, class. When I moved to junior high, they put me in all regulars classes, and I was the only kid from my gifted and talented group that went to that junior high that that happened to. Um, And so it was just, you know, but it's also too, like you're 11 or 12 and you're just kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe they just made a mistake. And my mom having to go to the school and like argue and they wanted me to take all these tests to like prove that I still should be in gifted and talented in junior high. And my mom was like, well, why are you wanting her to take this test? And like you literally automatically moved most of the other kids that came to this junior high into gifted and talented just based on that. Um, And so I think realizing like, so that was like probably my first experience with like, I call it kind of like soft bigotry, like the like expectations of like, Oh, because you're black, like obviously maybe you could do, you know, accelerated courses in elementary school, but you're not really accelerated material quality in middle school or high school or going forward. And so I think for me, like that's probably the most common form of racism I've experienced. I mean, I definitely have had experiences actually until I was in law school, um, the most like aggressive, I think what people think of as like typically racism, um, a friend and I were getting our nails done and the, the nail techs were just extremely, um, she had asked a question about a service and, you know, the owner got really irate and basically was like, kicked us out of the store, called the police. It was like a whole thing. And the, the whole, the police officers were like pretty like apologetic and, you know, like, it just was like a whole thing. Um, so that was like the most aggressive, that's probably the most aggressive experience of racism I've ever had in my life. And I thank God that it didn't happen until I was like in my early twenties. So I like had the tools to process it. I mean, for kids, um, that experience that, um, you know, I, it's just a whole nother thing to deal with it as a child. But, um, I would say the most common and over the course of my life has been just kind of like the soft, Right. Um, more polite face of racism. Well, what about the church? You grew up in an African-American church? Yes. So I grew up in an African-American church. In college, I went to a, a white church um, just because when I was growing up, I grew up in a fairly large African-American church um, with a lot of ministries and a lot of resources just because, you know, a lot of the families there were middle and upper class families. And when I went to college, I was looking for kind of the same experience Mm -hmm. in terms of like ministry outreach. Um, And where I went to college, a lot of the African-American churches were smaller and didn't just have that level of resources. Um, So I ended up going to a white church for four years um, of college and, and then subsequently have been primarily in African-American churches as an adult. Um, Contrast the experiences. I mean, did you, how did you feel in the white church? Was was it even, I mean, now everybody's sort of talking about the experience of being black in a white church and vice versa, but back years ago, was it sort of assumed that you, like, tell us more about that. How, how did you 
Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it definitely was different because I had, like, literally never had a church experience where I walked in and, like, I was, like, one of the few people that looked like me. And so it was, I mean, people were, like, polite. And I think because I was in college and I did a lot of stuff with the college ministry, um, maybe that was, like, a different experience. I mean, I... You know, we ha- I had really good, I think, college ministry pastors. I feel like the pastor and his wife kind of went out of their way to make mm-hmm. me feel welcome and a part of the ministry. But I also think um, it's interesting, too, kind of the thing I talked about before, kind of like the soft bigotry. So I think people assumed that I didn't know as much theologically or like mm-hmm. that my theology wasn't as good as theirs because I was African-American. And then it's like, um, so the church I grew up in is Tony Evans's church oak cliff bible fellowship um and so it would be like the moment i would m- mention dr evan people would be like oh okay like and it just, yeah yeah like you pass the test yeah like oh okay like there are sort of these like in white churches what i found in my experience there are sort of these like hidden tests i guess that you don't realize that you're being tested on until it's like afterwards and you see kind of like the shoulders like a sigh of relief and shoulders go down and you're like oh there's like some invisible boundary of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, but it's not um, made clear until either you pass or fail the test. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think I had a relatively good experience um, in the church. But you didn't, but you didn't settle in a white church. So talk a little bit more about that. Do you think there's a world where you no longer have a white church and a black church or a primarily white church with a few black people versus you know, what has made you as an adult settle into an all African-American community? Yeah. So I will say that being black in America, what it is for me, and this might change because I will go, like, I think I try to live with wherever God leads me. That's where I want to be. Um, but I think the season of life that I have been in is being black in America is really challenging and very difficult. And I think you on Sundays, you want to go to a place where you feel a part of the community that feels mm-hmm. like um, like a respite, right. From all the things going on in the world. And I do feel like, at least in my experience, like going to a white church is not quite that, like, it's not quite the respite or home. You're kind of on guard. Um, I think, you know, for whatever reason. And so I feel like for me, why I settled into a black church is like it, I needed that. And I, I will also say the last five years of, um, of my career, I worked for a predominantly white state convention, state denominational convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just is hard. I mean, it just is hard. Like it just as an African-American Christian um, being in multi-ethnic context is it's hard. It's a lot of work. You're making sacrifices. Um, you're doing a lot of, of um, gauging and measuring your language because you don't want to say something that's offensive or people hear something that you didn't intend. Um, There are ways, especially as you gather like influence and status, Mm -hmm. you have to be careful. Like you don't want to be angry. You don't want to be seen as angry or you don't want to, all of these kinds of things. And so there's always this like mental calculus going on um, of how to best say things, how to best communicate, um, how am I being perceived? And then you're just dealing with a lot of like 
I worked on public policy issues. So I got a lot of like angry emails and hostility. And so on Sundays, like I just wanted a place where I just like, I can be free to focus on God and worshiping God and being a part of this community without all of that extra like mental. And so I, that's for me why I I settled into an African-American church. Um, I do think that I do think God's heart for his church is for us to demonstrate unity. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, but it's not easy. I mean, even in reading Acts and like Romans and Ephesians and like a Paul spent a lot of time teaching on what it meant for Jews and Gentiles to be one body. Um, I do think that's God's design and I do think it's possible, but I think that there has to be some sort of radical um, changes in the way most of us do church for that to fully be realized. Well, I agree with you. And so a lot of talk right now is on the need for Christians to repent, but particularly white Christians to repent. What what do you see is the biggest sin of particularly, I mean, you can look at, you know, sort of the difference between social justice and justice and before, you know, sort of this biblical perspective versus, you know, wide social perspective, but, but really going into this issue of, 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 of repentance. I think when, when a white Christian hears, I need to repent, what, what does that look like to you from a perspective of, you know, explain to, to someone listening of what are we guilty of? Yeah. I mean, so I would say two things that come to mind for me and just in my experience, I would say the first is silence um, where there is injustice. I mean, I think this idea that like part of the frustration, I think, for African-Americans is like the historic civil rights movement was led by the church. And, you know, Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King and Fred Shuttlesworth and all of the Fannie Lou Hamer were all committed Christians. Um, And even that, I mean, looking at historically, had a very hard time convincing white conservative church-going folks in the 1960s to join their movement. Um, They um, were, and some were down, you know, were downright hostile or aggressively um, anti-civil rights. And so even as we move forward today, like the modern sort of justice movement is not led by the church. And I think it's because there's a lack of credibility because people don't see the church as having any authority to speak into this conversation because historically the church, particularly white church has been silent. So I would say that would be one. And then I think too, the, the second part of the silence is the complicity, right? Like we have mm. participated in these systems. Um, we have, you know, even where we see things might, you know, are wrong. We have allowed things to continue in this way and in some ways have actively supported um, racism or racist, um, you know, officials or policies or whatever. And so I would say the two things are, because I think oftentimes white conservatives, when they hear repentance, they're like, well, I'm not personally racist or I personally didn't earn slaves. But I think what we are talking about is like, there is a system, there's a culture in this country that treats African Americans, um, Latinos, Asian Americans as other, um, that in some ways, um, you know, is devalues our contributions Mm -hmm. to the country. And I think that white Christians have often either been silent or they've been complicit in that messaging um, because oftentimes the church is also perpetuating that messaging. Um, And so I would say for me, those are the two things I would say that when I'm thinking about repentance, I would say those two things. And so talk to me a bit more moving into that. What does that repentance look like? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think you see scripturally, like, I'll just use the example of Zacchaeus, right? Um, When he, you know, came to God, God said, or Jesus said, you know, like, you can't do what you were doing anymore, and you need to repair the damage that you did. Um, And so, you know, in his case, that was like giving money away or returning the money that he had stolen or gotten by ill-gotten gains. And so to me, I would say that repentance looks like, one, acknowledging you're wrong or you're the sin, right? So acknowledging that you've been silent, acknowledging that you've been complicit, acknowledging that you've been fearful, and then committing to changing your ways. Like, so then being like, okay, now that I'm aware, continuing to educate yourself on racism and injustice in this country, and then speaking. And I will say this because I often get people that are like, um, well, so much is going on. It's hard to speak to every issue or, or whatever. And I totally get that as someone who spent 10 years in public policy. There are a lot of things wrong in this country. But I would challenge you to pray about what is the one thing that you can do, whether relationally, um, whether it's like advocacy or public policy, like God has given you a specific ministry or mission field, maybe starting with your neighborhood, your community, um, and figuring, starting from there. Because obviously God has not called you to do everything, but what is the one thing that you can be a part of and do um, in this situation? And then I would say if there are specific relationships, you know, like no one is going to be perfect or do this perfectly. And I'm sure, you know, maybe you've said something one time or another, um, that was you're realizing now that was offensive um going back and repairing that damage like personally apologizing to the person that you offended and asking their forgiveness and then being okay with you know trying to rebuild the relationship but also giving that person space to say you know what i'm not ready to do that anymore and i think one of the things i think that a lot of white christians or just white people generally are fearful of is they don't they are more fearful about being called a racist and doing racist things. And so I always just like to say, like, you are probably going to get it wrong. You're going to say something racist. You're going to hurt someone's feelings. You're going to misspeak. But, you know, like the beauty of and Christians have the language for this, like the beauty of it is like you are no longer the worst thing that you've ever done. Once you're redeemed and you're under the blood of Christ, you're his. And so if you make a mistake, you made a mistake. That doesn't mean you're permanently in that state. Um, and so using that as an opportunity, rather than getting defensive or angry, using that as an opportunity to say, okay, I made a mistake and that was wrong. Please forgive me. I'm committed to doing better going forward. And here are the ways I've committed to doing better. And so I would just say, um, moving from a place of fear or a posture of fear in this conversation to a posture of like courage um, and kindness and just knowing that, you know, if, you know, for me, it's always freeing to know, like, I'm not going to get it right, like, but I'm going to try because I believe it's worth the effort. And I think if more white Christians could move past the idea of like, okay, I'm, I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. So I'm just not going to do anything like, well, no, you're going to do the wrong thing, but do it anyway. Like keep trying. It, it's more important to do the right thing. So a lot of people think that their duty ends when they tweet or social media, yeah. their thoughts on something. 
it, it, so I feel like the balance has gotten skewed. So there's a lot of people putting black box, especially remember when they had the, the, the social media, like put a black box on your Instagram a couple of weeks ago and everyone sort of started doing that. And then people were critiquing, like that's not enough. And so there is that sense of what's real virtue and what's virtue signaling. What's your take on that? How much responsibility do we have to just go on Facebook and tweet something or, you know, say it out loud there and then stop versus actually doing real work where you um, maybe engage on a more local level? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't think there's not any value to like social media and like tweeting. But I would say if that's the only place that you're doing work and making statements like that's not enough. So I would say, you know, I like I said, I mean, you don't have to say something about anything. But I do think sometimes for certain people in your community, it is important. I will just say from my personal experience. It is important to me when something like George Floyd happens to see my friends and and leaders that I care about and respect say something and acknowledge this thing that is traumatic for most African-Americans in this country. So I will say, Mm -hmm. and like, but I also want, okay, you've said something on social media, you've made some sort of statement, um, you've hosted a conversation. What are you going to do beyond that? What is your engagement with your local community, your local leaders? And so I don't think it's an either or. I think it's probably a both and. But I also think you want to be skewed towards um, action in your local community. And like, where so is that action? So moving into that briefly, uh, voting? I mean, what, what are the actions that people can practically do? Yeah. So I would say actions, I mean, voting is one way, one tool of bringing public justice, but I would say there are a lot of things. I mean, who are like, what are the specific needs and imbalances within your own community? So for me, my journey started with public education. I became aware that, you know, African-American Latino children get worse educations, partly because of this, you know, uh, President Bush called it the soft bigotry, soft bigotry of low expectations, but also resources are inequitably distributed. So what are some ways? So one way of committing to action is if you believe education is a tool out of poverty, what are you doing to support and improve public education for black and brown children in your local community? Whether that's, you know, being on the school board or going to those meetings and advocating for those students, you know, it's tutoring programs, it's voting in a way, um, you know, what is your city budget? or your school district's budget, how much money goes towards interventions and supporting families um, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that would be one, one thing I would suggest. I would say one action I think is really critically important um, would be just taking a season of like prayer and lament and like reading. So like the two books I would recommend um, as a good place to start would be The Color of Compromise by the Jamar Tisby. And then I would also, and well, I, I said two, but I'll give you three. So this, then I would also recommend Be the Bridge to Racial Unity by Latasha Morrison. And then the third book is uh, called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Tog- Thomas Ogden. Um, and I think specifically those three books are by Christians, um, I think would give some specific some historical context, um, understanding the contributions of Africans and African-Americans to the larger Christian um, culture and body. But then I think also to specific action steps of how you can be a tool of God's redeeming work and doing justice and racial reconciliation here on earth. 
It's, it's amazingly practical and helpful. I so appreciate that. Um, we'll have the uh, names of those books in the in the notes. Let me ask you, how would you grade the white church right now in the work that's happening on uh, fighting racism? Um, I think it's okay. So I think this would be hard because I mean, I feel like lumping all the churches together because I know some churches are doing better um, than most. Um, are doing better than others and some are just doing horribly and not doing anything. So I will say a C average, you know, just as like a median between those that are really trying and making efforts to, you know, um, dismantle and um, racism within their church body and reinvest. And I'll just give one example that I'm familiar with here um, in Texas of you know, white pastor partnering with a black church to do good work in black communities around um, food insecurity and payday lending and sort of helping bring new investments to a part of um, Dallas that has been historically uninvested or um, invested in. So like doesn't have the same access to like resources and and finances. So, um, so I won't say that all white churches are bad, but some are not that great. So (laughs) I will give a C, but I will say I am a church girl. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. I am always hopeful. And I know that where we are now does not, it does not have to be this way. We do not always have to be like this. And so I'm hopeful. I, I think I'm more hopeful about this conversation, about the church moving forward and doing things differently than I have been at any point in my adult life. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we are at a C, there's a C, but there, I think I am seeing a real heart and a desire to not just be average, but really to lead and kind of reclaim our prophetic role in talking about race and racism in this country. Uh, I think that's the aim. Absolutely hit it uh, on the on the head. I mean, it, you're incredible. Um, it, it, can I mention this, Catherine? You're so articulate. <laughs> For a lawyer, <laughs> you know, I'm a doctor, so we, we have we have some animosity between us. <laughs> and, uh, it's, really, this is an incredible conversation. I've committed to keeping the conversation under 30 minutes because we're going to be building on them week after week. So I am going to wrap our time together. Can Can you tell us how people can reach you? I saw your website. Give us such, you know your Twitter handles. Um, some ways to connect with you. Yeah. So I also co-host a podcast with a friend called Melanated Faith, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And then also find me on Twitter at Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, Annette. Okay. And we'll have the, the information for everybody here again in our in our notes. Um, man, it's been fun. This it was so fast. I could keep you for another hour, but I know you've got commitments and, and we've, we've established sort of a time in our minds. So I'm going to wrap this conversation up, but um, maybe down the road, uh, as things unfold, we can have you back on this podcast. I'd love to talk more. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Hey guys, if you've enjoyed this conversation, share it with someone. Uh, listen, these are days for us to learn, to grow. Uh, as usual, if you want to connect with me, go to livingwithpower.org. Plenty of resources for you. We've got a Facebook community where I'm on live every Thursday at seven. Love to see you there. And if you're uh, looking for resources to help you grow in your Christian walk, man, they're free. They're at your fingertips. Download our app, the Living With Power app. Have an awesome day. Don't forget, Jesus is the hope of the world. He's the reason we're here. Love you guys.